This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. More than 20 states across the country have public accommodation laws. These laws prevent businesses from discriminating against customers based on race, gender, religion, or sexual orientation. But a recent Supreme Court decision could put these protections at risk. I create speech for a living. When speech is involved, speech should be protected. This protects not just me, the LGBT website designer, the Jewish calligrapher, the Democrat speechwriter, the pro-life photographer. We all benefit from the court's ruling yesterday. That was Lori Smith. She's the plaintiff in 303 Creative v. Ellenis. She worried that Colorado's anti-discrimination law would force her to design a webpage for a same-sex couple's wedding if asked. Last month, the court ruled 6-3 in Smith's favor. The majority decided it would be unconstitutional under the First Amendment for her to have to create a message she opposes. What counts as expressive or creative speech under the First Amendment? What does this decision mean for anti-discrimination laws across the country? Louisville, Kentucky might be about to find out. The city passed a fairness ordinance protecting LGBTQ people in 1999. The mayor promised to defend the law after a wedding photographer sued, saying it violates her First Amendment rights. After the break, we head to Kentucky and hear from Louisville's mayor. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration. Remaking America looks at how our democracy is and isn't working for all of us. We'll be back with more after the break. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into it. Joining us from Louisville is Mayor Craig Greenberg. He's a Democrat who took office in January this year. Mayor Greenberg, welcome to 1A. Great to be with you today. So explain exactly what Louisville's Fairness Ordinance does. Sure. Well, as you just mentioned, since 1999, we have had a Fairness Ordinance in Louisville that provides protection for for employment protections. Uh, It was later expanded to public accommodations, including goods and services, and also housing. And so it is something that we are very proud to have here in Louisville. It's been expanded to other cities in Kentucky as well. And I am proud to continue defending the fairness ordinance so that we have a city where every member of our diverse city is treated with the respect and dignity they deserve and offers the same rights and protections to everyone. What was your reaction to this recent Supreme Court decision? I was very disappointed, and unfortunately, I was not particularly surprised, but I was very disappointed. Um, You know, what I thought about originally is that the arguments that we've been hearing about the fairness ordinance or other similar laws around the, the, the country, the arguments against them and against treating all citizens with respect are not new. These are tired and old arguments from a past that most of us are very happy to leave behind. 
Uh, but I was unfortunate, very disappointed to see the Supreme Court did not agree with this and that, in my opinion, they are moving us backwards as a city, as a state, as a country. And so I think it's important that cities like Louisville continue to defend our fairness ordinances and other statute to be an inclusive city where everyone is welcome and everyone has, is protected. But what does this decision mean for your ability to enforce your fairness ordinance in Louisville? Well, that's, that's a really good question. There is not clarity on that right now. And so we actually have um, a, another case that has um, not the same set of facts, but that is currently pending uh, through the judicial system right now. And we are going to continue um, to pursue that case because we want clarity. Uh, we want clarity on what in Louisville we are prohibited from doing under the Supreme Court's ruling and where we can still continue to enforce the fairness ordinance. And so uh, we do not believe that the Supreme Court is giving businesses a license to discriminate. And so we're going to continue to defend our fairness ordinance. You're referring to the case around Chelsea Nelson. She's a Louisville wedding photographer who argued the city could not force her to provide services for a same-sex wedding, and she was represented by the Alliance uh, Defending Freedom. That's a conservative group. Last year, a federal district judge in Kentucky ruled in her favor. Louisville appealed the district judge's ruling. Then the Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron sent you a letter last week asking you to drop that appeal. Cameron wrote, quote, I call on you to change course and to uphold the bedrock of our democracy, the right of every American, every Kentuckian, every Louisvillian to speak according to his or her conscience, end quote. And that case is scheduled to be argued before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on July 28th. As you said, you will fight this in court. Why? Because I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, what you just read, that uh, letter from the attorney general, that sounded like arguments from the 1950s or even earlier. Those are just outdated views on what cities like Louisville, what our country should be about. We are, we are a country that respects everyone regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And we want to be very clear to our citizens and the country that we are going to continue to defend this and we will continue to fight. And, and, and we're just seeking clarity as well. I mean, there is a lot of confusion on after this case uh, to get clarity on what expressive conduct means. For example, Subway, one of the nation's largest restaurants in the country, they, they call all of their folks that work and serve us sandwiches every day sandwich artists. Does that mean that does this case now mean that Subway can refuse to sell sandwiches to certain people because their employees are sandwich artists? I mean, what, what does that mean? And the, the, the way that you can take this ruling into really, really bad territories, we want to try to put a stop to and provide clarity for the rest of the country. I want to return to that Supreme Court case. Lori Smith, the plaintiff in 303 Creative v. Alanis, was again represented represented by the Alliance Defending Freedom. And after that Supreme Court decision, they shared a statement writing, quote, the Supreme Court made clear that the government can't force Smith to create speech that violates her beliefs, just as it cannot force a pro-abortion filmmaker to make a documentary supporting the pro-life movement, a lesbian artist to draw illustrations for a Christian book on marriage, or a Democrat publicist to pen Republican talking points, end quote. What do you think the limits of free expression should be? Well, I, I think the, the, the hypotheticals that you just cited are very different than providing services or goods 
to individuals. Uh, certainly if somebody is a true artist, um, you know, they're, they're deciding what the content is. But here we're talking about providing a good or a service to another individual. That is very different from writing a book or drawing a painting or writing a speech. Those are very different things. We all know this. I mean, th this is just gamesmanship. This is an effort for people to have the Supreme Court authorize their discrimination. And I think our country is tired of these games. Do you fear any legal repercussions from implementing this ordinance in light of the Supreme Court's decision? No, um, we have certainly very good uh, lawyers in our city government to make sure what we are doing is constitutional and appropriate. And that's also part of the reason why we continue uh, to defend our law and continue to uh, see this case that is pending in the Sixth Circus right, Sixth Circuit right now through completion, because we want to make sure what we're doing is lawful. We are going to continue to advocate our position, um, but at the same time, we also respect the, the rule of law. And so we are doing both of those things with our current approach. So again, the the case that originated in Louisville is scheduled to be argued be before the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on July 28th. What will you be doing between now and then? Well, our responses are, are all due on July 13th, I believe. And so, um, you know, we are, we are preparing those and we are going to uh, be very clear to the court about why this case is different from the Supreme Court's case and the Supreme Court ruling that, that just came down and continue to advocate for what we believe is a very important ordinance in our city, the fairness ordinance. Are, are you seeing any impact of the Supreme Court's decision in Louisville? Not yet, no. The only thing that um, the Supreme Court decision has done is cause a lot of people from all walks of life around our entire city to reach out to our office and thank us for continuing this appeal, for continuing to support the fairness ordinance. Other than the attorney general, I have heard no one who is against our approach. That's Craig Greenberg. He's the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky. He's a Democrat who took office in January this year. Mayor Greenberg, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we hear from legal and First Amendment scholars about how this case tests the limits of expressive speech and what it means for discrimination protections for LGBTQ people. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back into the discussion by welcoming two new voices. Amanda Shainer is a professor in the Department of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. She filed an amicus brief siding with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission in 303 Creative v. LNS. 
Also joining us is Brett Scharfs. He's a professor of law and director of the International Center for Law and Religion Studies at Brigham Young University. He filed an amicus brief in support of the webpage designer. Thank you both for joining us. Now, a reminder, the case we're discussing, 303 Creative v. Alanis, uh, let me do, sorry. Now, a reminder of the case we're discussing, 303 Creative v. Alanis. Last month, the Supreme Court sided with Lori Smith. She's a website designer in Colorado. She said the state's anti-discrimination law violated her First Amendment rights by forcing her to create a message she opposed. And the case raises big questions about what counts as creative expression in a business that serves the public and about the strength of local anti-discrimination laws across the country. So let's just start with a definition. Amanda, explain what public accommodation laws are and how this case might affect them. So public accommodation laws are just a type of anti-discrimination law that applies to businesses open to the public. So restaurants or theaters or that type of thing. Uh, And they say you can't, if you are, if you own one of these restaurants or you work in one of these restaurants, you can't discriminate on the basis of a variety of different categories, you know, race, sex, and uh, very frequently uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, and so, you know, the real question of this decision is the degree to which it will uh, blow significant holes in public accommodations laws across the country, such that businesses of a whole lot of different varieties might discriminate, and not just against LGBT people or LGBT uh, weddings, but also on the basis of other uh, types of categories as well. Uh, there's also the question about, you know, civil rights more broadly, not just in the context of, you know, the sale of goods and services, which is really sort of the heartland of where public accommodations laws apply. The Supreme Court ruled that it is unconstitutional for someone to have to use their creative talents to create a message they don't believe in. In his opinion for the majority, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote, quote, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that the government may not interfere with an uninhibited marketplace of ideas, end quote. Brett, what did the court say about where to draw that line between original ideas and other types of services? It's not altogether clear, but the basic parameters are in the decision. Uh, I would begin with the stipulated facts in this case. Um, it was stipulated, for example, that Lori Smith would serve gay customers Uh, Her objection wasn't to the sexual orientation of the customer, but to the message uh, being uh, communicated. It was also stipulated that these were customized web pages. Uh, They were not um, off the shelf or plug and play. And it was also stipulated that these services were expressive and a customized creation that expressed the creative outlook of not just the customer, but the website designer as well. And so I think those stipulated facts uh, give some shape to the scope of protection that is afforded to free speech in this case. Amanda, what do you make of the court's interpretation of expressive freedom? I think, I mean, I very much agree with Brett that the opinion in many ways raises more questions than it answers. It relied significantly on the stipulations between the parties, so the things that Colorado uh, and the website design company agree to as the facts. And so we don't really know whether or not, you know, 
um, the, the, the subway sandwich guy or a manicurist or hairdresser or the CVS passport photo technician um, are going to be considered, you know, the type of expressive or customized um, businesses that will be privy to this uh, this exemption from public accommodations laws. Uh, and I think because of that lack of clarity, there's going to be a lot of confusion. Um, and I think in some ways that makes the opinion, you know, a loaded gun for courts or businesses that want to discriminate. And Brett pointed out that, you know, the reason that this person wanted to discriminate um, or not serve was religious and not because of the, you know, she would sell to uh, gay people. But that isn't necessary. That's, you know, this is the First Amendment. It could be that someone wants to to not serve for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, and presumably that won't be a limiting principle. Well, we got this email from Shelley who says, this ruling opens the door for discrimination against any group that some religious sect decides is against their religion. Brett, is that your reading of it? And I want to hear from you as well, Amanda. It, it, no, it really isn't. Um, I don't think there's any chance that this reasoning could be applied to Uh, allow the subway sandwich guy to refuse to serve or the passport photo person to refuse to serve. And there's by no means a blanket invitation to discriminate on the basis of anything, much less a protected class. What I think this is, is this, as Justice Gorsuch explains it, says that public accommodations laws, which he says serve worthwhile purposes, are still subject to the First Amendment. And so I think ordinary First Amendment free speech protections apply. And I don't think that uh, some of the uh, scenarios that are uh, brought out uh, are really very likely. Uh, Amanda, your thoughts? I I mean, I really disagree with that. I think that there is a real question about what the practical implications will be of the decision, particularly in the context of the wave of anti-LGBT uh, and particularly anti-trans laws around the country and the rise of white nationalism. And I'll note that this was a decision under the speech clause, not the religion clause. And the speech clause protects speech generally, regardless of what your uh, motivation is. So, you know, you have a right to say really racist things, and that's part of what's normally included. Um, and so it, it doesn't strike me that this, um, that there's any reason to think that the, uh, the exemption will not extend to non-religious contexts. Um, and even if legally we might come up with reasons that it might, my real worry is the practical implications that, you know, that business was, will take this as a license to discriminate, particularly in our very polarized context. Adam emails, both this decision as well as the Colorado Cake Baker decision were absolutely decided correctly. I would like the two artists to change their mind, but I'm not about to have the government compel speech. Now, in 2018, the Supreme Court also sided with the baker in Colorado who refused to make a cake for a same-sex wedding. As soon as we sat down with the owner, he asked us who the cake was for. And when we said it was for us, he said he would not make a cake for a same-sex wedding. I will gladly sell you anything in my shop. But this is just an event that I can't create a cake for. Amanda, you worked on that case as an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union. What are some key differences between that 2018 case and this most recent case about the web designer? So there are two 
big differences that I would point to. The first one is that that case was ultimately decided under the religion clause, whereas this uh, decision was decided under the speech clause. And again, like I said, that makes it potentially uh, have a much broader impact on the world. The second thing that I'll say is the the first case involved, there was actually was a gay couple who was turned away. Um, and I mean, you, you just played uh, an interview. And in this case, everything was hypothetical. It was a business owner who uh, said that she wanted to uh, do wedding websites, but there was no uh, couple that was turned away. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, it, the optics of this case were very different insofar as the public only sees the, you know, person of faith who feels encumbered by these civil rights laws and not the real-time effects um, of what this type of decision could mean in terms of the effect of turning people away from really basic uh economic institutions. We got this question from Martin in Tennessee who says a burger should be the same regardless of who orders it. Custom work is different. Would you approve of forcing an African-American baker to create a cake for a Klan rally? And Amanda, we are getting a lot of messages along those lines. What's your response? So, I mean, there's a really important questions about whether or not you are creating a message or whether or not you're discriminating against someone on the basis of their status. Right. And so a lot of the examples that people are concerned about, so the speech writer or, um, you know, a, a number of other things, those normally aren't considered public accommodations. And they are. Um, and if they are, they're the type of the context where someone could decide not to, for example, write uh, you know, a Bible verse they disagree with or a hateful message that they disagree with in the context of something like a cake. And I think that's pretty clear under First Amendment law. What makes this opinion different, and I think what people don't necessarily understand, is that it can extend to contexts where you, you, it, your basis for discriminating may have nothing to do with the message, just with the person that you're serving. And I think the lack of clarity about the distinction there is what makes the decision frightening. Brett, part of what I'm hearing from Amanda is that the distinction between disagreeing with a message and discriminating against a protected group, that's where some of the confusion and stickiness in this tension comes in. I mean, how is someone who's just walking into a store and requesting a service, how would they know the difference? And how would the company convey that to a potential customer? I, I think that, you know, going back to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case is instructive. One of the reasons that that case was so uh, unsatisfying is because the negotiation really broke down before it was clear whether uh, what the customers wanted was a custom cake or an off-the-shelf uh, cake. By the time the case got to the court, it was stipulated that it was a custom uh, cake, but the way the dissent and the majority opinion are written in that case, there really seems to be a disconnect about that. And so I think that really is, in a way, the key question. One thing you can do to differentiate is you can ask, would you get the same answer if you did not have a same-sex couple as the customer? And so, for example, in the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you can say, well, what if it was the couple's mother that wanted to buy the cake, who is heterosexual? 
And Jack Phillips would not have made a rainbow pride flag cake for the mother or for the couple. And so that suggests that what he was really objecting to was the message of the cake rather than the uh, status of the customer. Amanda, your thoughts? I disagree with that. I mean, there's a famous Supreme Court case that says a tax on yarmulkes is a tax on Jews. And I think that to act like, you know, to refuse to make a, a website where you just fill in the pictures or where the, the, um, the, the wedding is, is not the thing that you're objecting to is the fact of the people <laughs> that you are serving. And I think, uh, particularly in context of a business open to everyone, right? This isn't, she doesn't just like, you know, do this herself or, it, you know, as a freelance artist, she, you know, holds out a shingle. And in that context, it's, um, again, very difficult for me to see how, um, how this won't be expanded to, you know, I, I read in the paper earlier that there is a case in Michigan of a, um, of a hairstylist who doesn't want to serve um, uh, trans or gender nonconforming people. And, and I'll ask Brett, like, what, you know, why wouldn't that meet the Supreme Court's decision? Or a person who doesn't want to make a website for an inter, uh, interfaith or an interracial couple? Brett, go ahead. Well, I think we let hairstylists sometimes choose what types of customers they're going to serve. I think some hairstylists focus on women rather than men. Some focus on African-Americans. You know, some, you know, do different sorts of things. And so those could be construed as discrimination on the basis of race or discrimination on the basis of sex. For some reason, we're a lot more sensitive and we sense discrimination much more readily in the LGBTQ context. I mean, in Colorado, for example, uh, in the cake baking situation, there were bakers who were asked to bake cakes with uh, messages against uh, same-sex marriage, and they were not compelled to make the cake. And so you know, not agreeing, you don't have to agree with the website designer or the cake baker in order to not want them to be compelled in in their speech. And you know, I think the same is, is the case here. While human dignity is not a, a protected right in the Constitution, as I understand it, it is a value that we hold as a country. And so if we're moving into a place where businesses are perhaps advertising that they don't work with certain types of people for whatever reason, what does that mean for that value we hold theoretically as a country? Yeah, that's a good question. And I value human dignity very uh, highly. I think it is a very important uh, human value and sort of the core of our civil rights and human rights uh, systems. And uh, I would encourage all people engaged in business and commerce to treat all customers with uh, dignity and respect, uh, even when you are perhaps turning them down for a custom job that you're not well-suited for or have a conscientious objection to uh, performing. And so, you know, if you're a photographer and you're asked to do a MAGA rally or a, you know, Moms for Liberty event and you just disagree with the message, I think you can still deal with that customer in a way that doesn't threaten their underlying dignity and identity. 
And I think that's what's really at the heart of these issues is they cut very close to what we th- the ways we think of ourselves as individuals, you know, our, our race, our, our gender identities, our sexual orientations, our religious commitments. And when we sense that we're being discriminated against because of those important parts of our identity, I think it is, you know, really understandable and, and very human to not want to be discriminated against. And so I think these are genuinely difficult issues and um, I think that we want to try to understand the scope of these holdings uh, that vindicate uh, you know, this so-called right to discriminate very narrowly. I think it's just a uh, compelled speech case, and we want to be careful about compelling speech, whether it's speech that requires someone to uh, do a gay wedding or, you know, as uh, your caller Tina, Tina said, you know, someone who wanted you to do something on behalf of uh, white nationalists. Amanda, specifically to that question of human dignity, what are your thoughts? So I, so I very much agree that it's about human dignity, but I also think it's a question of um, of democracy and people's ability to participate, all sorts of people, in really important institutions in a market society, right? It's, um, I, I am not compelled by the arguments that I, I think I hear you making, Brett, that, you know, now everyone can discriminate. I don't think that further balkanization or siloing of people is good for our economy or our society. And that principle that um, there should be equal access to all is really the driving idea behind public accommodations laws. I also want to clarify something I think is really important. Nobody um, disagrees, uh, certainly the at least in this case or in the Masterpiece case, that, for example, Lori Smith could go on the, you know, go on all the news shows and go on the, you know, on the internet and say she really opposes uh, gay marriage. Uh, she also could, you know, post on all of her websites that, you know, marriage is only between, you know, God believes marriage is only between a man and a woman. The question was not that. It was whether or not she would just make a website that includes the pictures and the information about a couple. And that is about turning away someone because of who they are, not about the message, unless the message just is, I don't want to serve you. And that's why I think we should really be concerned about this opinion as opposed to really excited because it, per- it protects important speech values. I think this is less about speech than, um, than a lot of people understand and more about whether or not people really are going to be able, of all different stripes, are going to be able to participate in really fundamental institutions in our society. That's Amanda Shainer, a professor in the Department of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania, and Brett Scharfs, a professor of law and director of the International Center for Law and Religion Studies at Brigham Young University. Amanda, Brett, thanks for joining us. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. 
The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's get back to the conversation by welcoming Ken Paulson. He's the director of the Free Speech Center at Middle Tennessee State University and a First Amendment lawyer. Ken, welcome back to the program. Always good to be with you. So, as we heard from our last two guests, there's some ambiguity about what counts as expressive speech as it's laid out in this decision. What do you make of that ambiguity? I think there's less ambiguity than we might think if you look at the letter of the decision. You know, both of your guests made excellent points about stipulations. And I was surprised that Colorado had acknowledged, had said that Lori Smith, the creator of the website, was somebody who was going to bring great creativity to her website. I don't recognize that business of web design. I've had many web uh, sites designed for me. And in every case, it was my speech, not the designer's speech. I told them what we wanted to say. I told them what colors we wanted to use. I I told them how thick the border should be. And then they executed. To me, this case should have been handled just like a sign painter. All you're doing is putting... Uh, wooden planks on other wooden planks and painting the following words. To me, the notion that this was some sort of deeply expressive act and a reflection of her art just seems terribly misplaced to me. Someone wanted to make a point and found this largely hypothetical, hypothetical vehicle to do it, but she is not the Michelangelo of web design people. We got this email from Rebecca that echoes that I am confused about why her speech is protected because she would be designing a website for someone else's wedding and therefore would be expressing their views, not her own. When we receive holiday cards created by Tiny Prince, for example, do we believe that the views expressed belong to Tiny Prince? I certainly don't. And I don't see how the web designer is any different. Ken, I want want to dig down a little bit more into how the First Amendment has been interpreted over time. Has it always protected speech that is produced on behalf of someone else? Or is this a newer iteration that we're seeing? Well, you know, the real theme that runs through this decision is actually something called compelled speech. And uh, that begins, you know, uh, almost a century ago. There's a famous case in 1942 in which uh, the Supreme Court initially, initially decides that young people in public schools have to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And then after an outbreak of violence against Jehovah's Witnesses who brought that case in 1944, the court, embarrassed, turns around and says, no, wait, the right to speak also includes the right not to speak. So that's the most powerful legal uh, message running through all this. That's the key principle. And, And we're really concluding that you cannot... You know, the court said basically this web designer cannot be made to say that she supports gay marriage, cannot be compelled to do that. And, and so that's the overriding legal principle here. 
The notion that you would have free speech as somebody for hire, you know, that's less clearly delineated. And in my view, and I think there was a very powerful amicus brief file in this, the question is this. Is this primarily a commercial transaction or is it primarily a statement by the person who created the site or designed the cake or designed the hair? And I think if you look at this, anyone would step back and say, clearly a commercial transaction. She's got a shingle out. She's offering this service to everyone. And, and all we're doing is saying, I'm coming to you. Here's my message. Please share this with the world. We got this email from Nancy who says, Recently I was receiving a manicure from someone I had patronized for many months. Near the end of the appointment, she began to express her views on LGBTQ issues, which were absolutely opposite of mine. Good to know. She's entitled to those opinions, and I'm entitled to take my business elsewhere. I understand the principles being discussed as the result of the SCOTUS decision, but on a practical level, there are benefits to knowing who I want to do business with. Four companies that look at this decision and say, okay, well, there are, there are certain types of messages we don't want to, um, we don't want to produce, we don't want to be a part of. What responsibility does that company now have to include that in their advertising? Or do they have any responsibility at all? Or, or can people just walk in and be told No. Well, you know, the key to understanding much of this is recognizing that the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, is there are things similar to that in 20 states. In most of the states in the U.S., this conversation doesn't happen. So it's not, it's not a universal. Um, having said that, I, I think the key is whether you have a public-facing business. Have you hung out your shingle? You know, the Supreme Court mentions that unless they reach this decision, speech writers could be required to write speeches for causes they don't believe. That is nonsense. There's no speechwriter in your local mall <laughs> next to the Sears store or whatever replaced the Sears store. There's no speechwriter or ghostwriter saying, you know, I'll write your book with a, with a display in the mall. This is, a, this is a, a very particular field in which people specialize. You know, they talk about artists. Artists who do landscapes are not going to be asked to create erotic art because they can't. Perhaps they can create erotic art in a field. I don't know. But the bottom line is these are specialized fields that require true expression and not just taking something off the shelf, which in web design terms is called a theme, and plugging in their new ideas. The gulf between being a true artist, a, a true author, uh, and, and being a web designer in this limited commercial way, it's a huge gulf, and we shouldn't confuse the two. As someone who studies the First Amendment, what are you watching for on the legal front now that this decision has dropped? Well, the concern is that others who wish to discriminate against the gay community will suddenly determine that their jobs, whether it's accounting or public relations, they will find all kinds of expressive elements that they magically, only they magically can deliver. That's where the abuse can really occur. That's Ken Paulson. He's director of the Free Speech Center at Middle Tennessee State University and a First Amendment lawyer. Ken, thanks for joining us. 
Always a pleasure. Thank you. Today's show was part of our Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations across the country. It's funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.